You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. ...than what our culture has made it to be. Um, so tonight we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures um, in your home, please take that copy with you today. Um, So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good evening, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Uh, If it's your first time, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. We're glad that you're here to celebrate Christmas Eve with us. Thanks for making us a part of your Advent celebration. Um, There's nothing greater than being able to be here with the people of God to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord as the Savior. And so I'm so excited to do that. I want to pray for us before I jump into the text, and then uh, we'll do some work in the book of Luke this evening. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, first and foremost, we thank you. Um, We come to you with thanksgiving, enter your courts with thanksgiving, because the story of your son, the Lord Jesus, is not merely a story, but it is historically true. We thank you that we have more than a fairy tale to tell. And that, Lord Jesus, you not only were born into this world over 2,000 years ago, but that you still reign and you rule as king and as Lord. And we are so grateful. We worship you together. We ask now that as we submit ourselves to your word, that, Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears to hear you. As your word says, we pray, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might be made more like you. And that we would not only be encouraged, although we deeply desire to be encouraged, Lord, but we would also be shaped and molded into your image, conformed at the will level and heart level, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. I want to read Luke chapter 2 once more, just verses 1 through 7. And I really want to focus in this evening on verse number 7. In the days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It's massive taxation. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Joseph has to make his way back to his hometown where his clan dwelled in Bethlehem. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Mary is pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for, him, for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, 
wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So the story of Christmas is that the Lord Jesus, after arduous travel with his pregnant mother Mary and his father Joseph, he's born into the world in this magnificent moment in human history, but surprisingly, there's not enough room at the local hotel for them to actually have somewhere for Mary to give birth. They have to end up giving birth. Mary gives birth to Jesus in the barn outside the city and lays him in the feeding trough. It's incredible that she would think this story would be true, and yet it is. I want to focus heavily on the fact that Jesus and his mother and his father were rejected and pushed away, and that were not received because there was no room for them at the end. The hymn writer Isaac Watts, we already sang this this evening, but he tells the story like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. This is the key line. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, heaven and nature sing, heaven and nature sing. So Isaac Watts rightly points out that the lack of room at the inn is actually a symbol for something deeper than that, something greater than that. It's a symbol of what's to come in the life of Jesus, namely that he would not be received. He would be rejected by those around him. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John articulates it in this way. In John chapter number 1, starting in verse number 10, he says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, him being Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So all of us, maybe uh, later this evening or most likely tomorrow, are going to have the opportunity to probably eat more food than you're actually excited about eating, and there'll be more options for you at the table. You know, it's uh, if you haven't experienced that uh, yet, it's it's coming for you probably tomorrow. And that is, there's so much food, and you have to basically be discriminatory, or else you're going to be sick. Um, And and if you're on a diet, may the Lord be with you. You know, it's just not going to work. and, and I thought about that in relation to the smorgasbord of uh, offerings that we are given each and every day as a culture. Uh, we're inundated with exclusive offers, whether that's through advertisements or media or social media. Every single day, people offering you things to receive. Um, the spiritual and the ideological offerings are more pervasive even than the physical offerings, and yet they keep coming at us. The question's not, will you receive something? Because you will. Um, We all will receive something that's being offered to us. The question is, what will you make room to receive because you can't receive it all? You can't, just like whenever you go to the dinner table, you got to be discriminatory about how many rolls or which which ant's rolls you're going to eat more of. You can't have it all. And so the question at Christmas and every other day is, Will we prepare room to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the most important question that we will answer, not just one time a year, but every day of our lives. And we have to define what receiving him means. What does it mean to receive Christ? When John says that his own people did not receive him, but that for those who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, what does he mean? When we receive Christ, we receive him by giving him the honor and the praise and the glory that is due to his name. We receive Christ by recognizing him, not just as the Savior, 
but as the Lord, not just as the Lord, but as the true king that not only has reigned and not only will reign in the future, but currently reigns and rules as the king of kings. We prepare room in our hearts to receive Christ at Christmas when our hearts align with, as Isaac Watts says, all of heaven and nature, the song of creation, that Christ is the Lord. Now, at Christmas time, as we consider the question, the second most important thing that we must do is ask ourselves, how is it that the people in Christ's day failed to receive him? Like, have you ever asked yourself that question? How did they miss it? You know, the Jewish people had been waiting for the Messiah, had been waiting, you know, they had the scriptures, they had Malachi, they had all the prophets telling them that this guy was coming. And then when he did, and they, he, had an even, he even had a star, you know, that was leading people to him, it's kind of a big deal, and they missed him. How did they miss him? And we want to know how he, they missed him because if we're willing to get over our pride, it means that you and I could also miss him. And not just miss him once a year, but miss him over and over again. And so I have three major points, and I want to be brief because I know our kiddos are with us. So I want to be brief, and I want to be helpful, or at least one, and then we can go. First is we fail to receive Christ because we're threatened by him. We fail to receive Christ because we're threatened by him. King Herod couldn't receive Christ because the Magi had arrived at his palace and told him that there was a child to be born, the king of the Jews. And it just so happened that that was a title that Herod had held to with all of his heart and he had protected it with everything that he had all the way until the end. He was so fastidious about protecting his title as the king of the Jews that he was even willing to harm his own family to keep them from the throne. And so when these people, these magi, the wise men showed up and said, the king of the Jews is born, he didn't think, wow, what a sight, this is amazing. He thought this man is a threat. Let's, you know, the innocent of the massacres is the result. Okay. Now we can all throw stones at Herod and if you've read a history book, then he deserves most of them. Okay. So I'm not even mad about it. Um, But in the end, we have to see the motivations of Herod as something that are at least familiar to us. If we're willing to be honest, because we too can count the cost of receiving Christ as the King too high a price for us. What does that look like? Well, after all, if Jesus really is the King, then that means that he gets to set the standard for our lives. If Jesus is the king, he gets to call balls and strikes for your life, your marriage, your kids, your family, your job. If Jesus is the king, he has all of the authority, he has all of the power, he has all of the rights to command us to do what he desires. And if you really think about that for long enough, that is a little threatening to your way of life, is it not? Christ threatens our sense of autonomy. Christ threatens our sinful proclivities. Christ threatens our desire for control. Christ threatens a lot of things that we have learned to hold very dear, much like Herod. He threatens our idols. He threatens our sense, false sense as it is, but nonetheless, our sense of security that we derive from things like earthly powers and earthly promises. But I want you to remember at Christmas, listen to me when I say this, remember this, the threat that we feel when we consider Christ as king is not the threat that Christ actually poses to us, but the fact that Christ poses a threat to our sin. Sin has striven to make its home in us, in you and me. It has no place in us, but nonetheless, it digs deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives. Sin tries to convince us that Jesus has no place in this inn. And Jesus comes, Christ comes into our lives and tells sin that it has no place in us. And that's a threat to sin. And so the battle within our members, as Paul says, is happening because sin has an interest in sticking around. 
And Jesus has an interest in pushing it out. And so Christ is a threat to sin in the same way that a scalpel in the hands of a skillful physician is a threat not to the patient, but is a threat to the cancer he's cutting out. And yet, because those two are intertwined, it can feel scary going into surgery. Does this make sense? And so we have to make sure that we don't see Jesus as a threat to us. He's come to set us free. He's a threat to the sin that enslaves us. Christ the Lord doesn't come to harm but to heal, not to enslave but to set free. And so we should prepare him room in our hearts. Number two, we don't receive Christ because we get offended by him. We don't receive Christ because we get offended by him. The Pharisees rejected Jesus um, often because they were offended at his teaching. Uh, they were offended that Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father. Uh, they, they were offended that Jesus flouted their Sabbath regulations. And most of all, they were offended because he often told stories that made them seem like losers. <laughs> and nobody likes that. You know, when I get around at uh, the home group and somebody tells a story that's obviously about you, and it's not flattering. The rich young ruler famously walked away from Jesus after being offended when he told him to sell everything that he had in order to follow him. The zealots of Jesus' day were offended when Jesus would not march on Rome to bring Israel's glory days back through military force. And all of these offenses came because Jesus was a man unwilling to do anything more or anything less than simply what the Father had called him to do. He wasn't shaped by man's will. He wasn't shaped by man's desires. And so when other people wanted Jesus to conform to their image, he was unwilling and it's offensive. Again, it's easy to judge these characters through the corridors of history, but I want us to be fair to them by being honest with ourselves. We should be able to relate because if you're a Christian and Christ has not offended you yet, then I would, I don't want to offend you, but I dare say you may not have listened up closely. He offends all the time. When Jesus decides to tell us about the truth, it often stings because the things that we've convinced ourselves and the things that are true often don't share the same room. Christ is offensive precisely because he did not come into the world, into the manger in order to affirm the world that everything's okay down here. I guess I can go back to heaven, but he came in order to save it from its doom and from its difficulties. Christ, of course, didn't come into the world to condemn the world, like John said, but he did come to save it, which means that it was in peril, right? So we have to recognize it can be offensive for someone to arrive in your home in the middle of the night and tell you they're there to save you and you don't think that there's anything wrong. <laughs> Put yourself there. The firefighter shows up. It's 1 a.m. He's there to save you from the fire and you see no smoke. That's frustrating. It's even offensive. But Jesus was unwilling to allow us to be so blinded to the smoke that we would not be saved. So instead, he opened our eyes to see the spiritual realities that we were in true peril and then rescued us nonetheless. Of course, it's still true today. And so we must prepare him room. Lastly, number three, we don't receive Christ because we can get too busy for him. We don't receive Christ because we can get too busy for him. This was true 2,000 years ago. It's still true today. In Luke chapter number 14, Jesus tells a parable to his disciples about a man who invited all of the town to a great banquet, a wedding banquet. He invites everyone to come and celebrate, but everyone has a reason, an excuse of busyness as to why they can't be there. They got something else going on. Everyone has a reason they can't make it. Everyone's jammed up. They got their own life going on. They can't squeeze in an attendance to the marriage banquet. 
Of course, the man's frustrated, and so he implores his servant, I want you to go out and get everyone who's crippled, lame, sick, and poor, and invite them in. The servant returns and says, I've done what you said, and there's still more room. And so the man says, go out everywhere to every highway, every byway, every hedge, and invite everyone because I want my house to be full. Of course, we know that Jesus is making a point here that his father wants the wedding supper of the lamb to be full, and he will fill it no matter what, that God will have eternity filled with his children. But there's another point here, and something that's unsettling a bit is, why is it that Jesus tells this parable and the master of the banquet only invites the poor, the crippled, the lame after all of the better guests said no? This doesn't seem like Jesus, does it? It seems like those are the people that Jesus hung out with first. And I would say, no, the point of the parable is deeper than that. You see, Jesus was often castigated by the Pharisees and others for hanging out with these very types of people. He caught a lot of flack for being friends with sinners, being friends with prostitutes, being friends with sick people, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. Jesus wasn't popular for this. And so Jesus tells this parable not because he would be intent on inviting that type of people second, but because he wants the people that are listening to recognize, as he had told the Pharisees when they questioned him about his party and about the people that he hung out with, Jesus' response was, I did not come to heal the righteous, but the sinner. Or he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is saying this tongue-in-cheek. He's looking at the Pharisees who think they're well, and he's telling them that until you realize you're sick, you won't want to hang out with me. Similarly so, Jesus here tells this parable, because until a person recognizes their deep need for the Savior, the deep need for the child in Bethlehem, they're not prepared to receive him. Until we know what is meant by the offer of the feast, we're not going to make room in our daily lives. We will actually find everything else to busy ourselves with. Anything else under the sun can keep us from saving the very thing we need. But, listen to this, it's kind of hard to run around town when you're paralyzed. It's kind of hard to hit the gym when you're sick. Some of you have recognized that this winter. And it's difficult to hop on a plane to vacation when you don't have two nickels to rub together. And so what is Jesus saying? It's sometimes it's the, it's the very times in our lives where we've actually been halted without our permission that we're ready to hear what it is that God has to say, namely that we need him because when we don't feel needy, the Savior feels worth less. You see, when busyness gets halted in our lives with or without our permission, we're left with the eternal questions. They're always there, but they're far too easy to drown out when we're caught in the hustle and the bustle. These questions, they stir up from the deepest parts of our soul. When we're slowed down, we all feel them, but it's really tough to slow us down. My guess is that you made heroic efforts to be here tonight because your schedule is as atrocious as mine. And yet, we're slowed down to feel what? We're slowed down to feel the pining of our sinful hearts to be free. The longing of our souls to know God. The yearning from the depths to be redeemed. You see, it's there that we're finally able to peer over the feeding trough in Bethlehem and see the king for who he is. This is why the shepherds were the ones the angels announced the birth of Christ to, because God himself knew it was the shepherds or people like the shepherds who would understand the meaning of Bethlehem in a way that Caesar Augustus could never. It's there just outside the city that to the person that recognizes that the 
as the hymn writer says, that long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Until a man knows that the world itself is full of error and pining for the Savior, they can't look into the manger and see who's really there. So, here's the good news. John doesn't make the bad news of not receiving Christ the highlight of John chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Instead, in verse 12, he tells us there are many who did receive him. I want to read to you what it means to receive him and what is gifted to us. Verse 12, chapter 1 of John. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. In other words, John would say this at Christmas, do you know what's better than being the king of the Jews, Herod? Being a child of God. Do you know what's better than being in control of everything in your life? Being a child of God. You know what's better than being right, Pharisees? Being a child of God. Do you know what's better than being rich and wealthy, rich young ruler? Being a child of God. Better than rejuvenating the nation, bringing Israel back to its glories, is being a child of God. Better than being busy and successful and in the know and in the moment, never missing out, is being a child of God. You see, to be a child of God is the greatest gift that anyone could ever give you. And it is no wonder that it could only be given by the child of God himself. Or to put it another way, C.S. Lewis said it like this, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is at the very heart of the Christmas story. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Let us return and reclaim the glories of Christmas Day. Here on Christmas Eve, prepare him room in your hearts. Received Christ this evening, maybe all over again, and join in the song of all creation, which sings, as Isaac Watts said, the joy of the world because the Christ has come. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you that you've given us your word, which is true, and that in your word we have those We know those proclivities of ourselves because we see ourselves in the scriptures. We pray now you would keep us, my God, from seeing you and following you as a threat to our own lives and instead help us to see it for what it is, that the the only thing or person that ought to feel threatened is sin and Satan and that there's life on the other end. So help us to receive you. Help us, my God, not to be offended at your words but instead to receive the truth as though it were medicine for our hearts, salve for our wounds. And God, as we've, slow, as we've made room tonight to slow down, we ask that you would meet those deepest needs of our souls, the pining we feel, the longing for home. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet us here now so that as we sing, it would be more than mere words. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only were born, but you still reign. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.